welcome back to the fourth episode of the Becoming Fully Human podcast. This episode is a recording of a conversation between uh, myself and Geraldine Mattis, who, how to describe her? Well, her formal description would be... um, She's a lay midwife, a sexual reproductive health educator, a depth psychologist. She's the founder of the Justice Method, um, which is the symptothermal fertility awareness-based method um, that I actually studied for a year at the Justice School, where she was my uh, mentor. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a holistic reproductive healthcare practitioner course and. During my year of the two-year program studying with Justice, Geraldine and I formed a very amazing relationship. And when I left the program, we continued that relationship. And she is just a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. And today in the podcast, we discuss epistemology and epistemological crises which is essentially the the study of knowledge um we touch on things like how can we know anything identity uh, how we cling to our beliefs from an egoic place of self-preservation we discuss truth self-awareness healing and so much more so uh, i hope you enjoy i'm really excited to share Geraldine with all of you. Um, she's really a very special person to me and so I hope you enjoy. Links will be in the description if you'd like to connect with Geraldine directly uh, or work with her. Enjoy. Um, so on the subject that you chose is a word I can barely pronounce. Epistemological. Epistemological. <laughs> <laughs> I did a bit of research. Things that came up, the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods, validity, and scope, and the distinction between justified belief and opinion. Mm -hmm. And then basically it's the study of knowledge and how we know what we know. How do we we know what we know, Geraldine? (laughs) How do we know what we know. Well, I think I'm going to speak from a depth psychological perspective, Mm. um, is that we know what we know through our lived experience Mm. of projection and counter projection onto the world, people, Mm. places, and things, how they respond to us, how we respond to them and the meaning that we make of them. So that's how we come to know the world and know what we know, whether it's grade school, you know, learning how to fish or any sort of skill or how we know about animals or anything. It's, it's through the lived experience of it, whether it's by text, by audio, or by actual physical, you know, the tactile realm and feeling realm. How does science play into all of this? And like, uh, how does science play into knowing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would think science in and of itself is a system of belief. Hmm. 
And so it has, a, it has particular rules about what is true. So just like spiritual practices or spiritual systems have constructs about what is true, well, so too does science. So it has a whole system for how you manage data or the materia of experience to determine what is true or not true about it. So if I want to know what is true about how plants grow, and I want to write that up as a scientific truth, then I have to set up my conditions for observing that in such a way following the scientific method. And if I follow the scientific method in a rigorous way, then whatever the outcome is, from a scientific point of view, I can say this is true. Um, but as we know, all systems at some point fail when it comes to the truth. Hmm. At, their, like, at their core, at their like most, the deepest hmm. root of like, even when you look at plants, why do plants grow? We can observe things with our senses, like they need light, they need water, but like, why do they grow at their core? Like, it's kind of like the mysteries of, of life itself at the core of everything. Exactly. And so part of what we know and how do we know what we know is, is really an evolutionary process because all of our accumulated experience comes to inform every time we go kind of around the, the labyrinth, as it were, or around, you know, around the spiral of a topic or a subject we come. Mm -hmm. So if I'm considering how plants grow as a two-year-old, I might watch how my little bean sprout sprouts, you know, in a mm. wet paper napkin. And then I think I know how things grow. Mm. Put a wet paper napkin in it. But then I have my first garden and I have somehow learned in books or YouTube or my, some adult told me that you put the seeds in the garden and you have to give it water and it has to be the right temperature. And then I think I know how it grows. Mm. Then I have the experience of maybe my plants don't grow or they grow in a way that I didn't expect. So I learned from that. Then I, fast forward to 20 years. And I see where you're going. <laughs> okay, where do you think I'm going? What happens when we cling to our two-year-old self's knowing and assume that that's the way it is and that other people who might be in their 20-year-old self or their 65-year-old self or their 90-year-old self. Like, there's a discrepancy. Actually, even before that, like, is what is truth? Is there, is there a greater truth that applies to all people? And because so many things factor into that as well, right? There's per perception. Mm -hmm. Changes the way that we experience the way that something grows or, I mean, that... The way something grows is is maybe more straightforward, but then when you start to involve emotions and you know socio-political economic beliefs and trauma, then we have like a perfect storm of variables that influence the way that people see things. And then we identify with them to the point where if someone disagrees with us it's a challenge on who we are at our core. And so exactly. we're, not, we're not just defending our beliefs, we're defending ourself because if someone dismantles one of our beliefs, then we feel like we've lost our sense of self. And then, 
Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, exactly. Well, you've identified correctly that, you know, the ego believes that its beliefs are the whole of our being. And mm-hmm. so if our beliefs or what we think we know is somehow shattered by a different presentation of reality, then we take it personally. Mm. But if we can understand that it's a necessary process that we're always learning, relearning, refining our learning, and we, we train our ego not to take little epistemological crises too personally, then it's not a big deal. Mm. But let's say, for example, our first epistemological crisis might be really in childhood. You know, for example, the child, you know, just learns that if they have a tantrum or they ask for something that they will get it, then finally the parental body has had enough of whatever, throwing the spoon off the high chair. You know, it's funny and it's a game for a while and the child has a sense that, oh, I know that if I throw this spoon, it's going to be entertaining because someone's going to pick it up and put it on. And so already he's establishing some sense of control of the world and how he, what he knows about how to control it. Mm. And then the, the adult says, no, we're not playing this game anymore. And he gets very angry. The child gets very angry. And what's happened is what he thought he knew about how he could control the world has been shattered. Now, it gets more complex as we get older. So it happens in relationship. We thought we knew somebody. We thought we understood how they cared about us or we care about them. And then they say or do something that doesn't fit in that sense Mm -hmm. of knowing. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like, what the F is going on here? I thought, blah, blah, blah. Is that almost in a sense, cognitive dissonance? Like if someone is always operating in a way that we think we know, and then something they do doesn't fit within the paradigm of what we thought that they were or how they operate or behave? Yeah, I think a cognitive dissonance is one way to to describe it. And the dissonance can happen the exterior world or it can happen within ourself, like not just like a person. Oh, totally. In relationship, you know, we can, yeah. Actually, in the example that you gave, I mean, with relationships, like the cognitive dissonance is probably greatest in the person themselves when they behave in a way that they didn't think they were capable of. So if, if, you know, a partner's, someone cheats. And from my experience, having been cheated on, he was more affected than I was almost because he did something he didn't believe he was capable of doing. And so his sense of self being a good guy, a good partner was shattered. And what do we do with that as? (laughs) Well, this is where I think we have to be kind to ourselves and forgiving of our Mm -hmm. own humanity because Essentially, most of our actions and our words come are driven by unconscious factors. So Mm. part of the problem with the Western mind, you know, the Descartian mind, is that it thinks that just the rational mind is the truth and the rational thought and that we can just figure things out and sort things out. And so it's always somewhat puzzling and ego deflating when our rational self is betrayed by our non-rational self. Mm. So for example, I'm a 
monogamous partner. I'm not going to cheat. I'm a good guy or I'm whatever. The, I'm a good person, whatever the, whatever the script is. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you know, you're lusting after somebody else and you promise to be faithful. So you're experiencing that crisis in yourself. But what's, but then you have to examine it. What's happening often is a non-rational response. Because the rational self says, I'm monogamous, I'm not a cheater, I'm not an a-hole. Yeah. But something in the unconscious is compelling you towards that person with the kinky boots. Mm. And there's something about that that is compelling. So, and then typically we just stuff it down and say, that's wrong, I can't do it. Rather than asking of ourselves, where did this unconscious impulse towards kinky boots come from? yeah and what does it mean and what it's about if we if we shove it back into the hole it might come back in again to haunt us and sometimes with more strength mm. if we act on it concretely we may miss the symbolic message mm. so is it so we concretize it into cheating or not cheating or good or bad mm. rather than well who is here now so the thing that saves ourselves in an epistemological crisis is everything I thought or believed that I knew is being is on the table for questioning. Mm. So let's put it on the table and see who's here, who, who came in and mixed up my soup. And we're not giving much opportunity for that. I guess probably since the, the dawn of time, it's, it's easy to say now, like in this era, it's especially true, but I think I'm reading um, Marcus Aurelius's meditations mm. and it's makes, I'm laughing out loud at every page that the stuff that was relevant then is so relevant today and vice versa. It's like, I think he says that if you've experienced 40 minutes of life, you've experienced 40 years or 400 years. He's like, everything just kind of loops and loops and loops. And in, uh, I mean, relevant to my experience in this era, particularly these times, there's a really big cancel culture where someone might have said something, tweeted something 10 years ago, and because it was politi politically incorrect or wrong or a bad joke, they're getting canceled in, mm -hmm. in modern day, losing work opportunities, um, being labeled as a bad person, essentially, based on a sliver of their life experience. And so it paints people as that concept you're either good or you're bad and if you did anything that's bad you're a bad person and then you don't deserve forgiveness um, the opportunity to grow even people who have demonstrated growth since perhaps making a bad joke five years ago and have never again you know stooped that low or whatever however you want to perceive it they're being like exiled mm-hmm and pretty cruel out there right now lots of sharks eating politically correct sharks and police yeah and how how can people honor the, their own shadow when like if anyone else shows a glimpse of their darkness they're being completely dismissed and then how does that give us an opportunity to like live authentically i guess because everyone has a shadow and all light casts a shadow and instead of integrating it in a healthy way, we're being forced, well, we're being encouraged to suppress it 
and not examine these parts of ourselves that think things that potentially push the border of what's politically correct or yeah show any amount of darkness right well i do think um right now there's a suffering from a lack of symbolic function you know if you don't have good symbolic function you can't see the other side of things you can't see the humor in things or you can't read into a deeper context or right. or even read into the person like where is this coming from so along with political correctness is the idea first of all which is a very elitist idea is that everyone should be educated as to what is the right language to use what is the right word what is the right manner so when i was a young girl people were very strongly judged you know if they hadn't learned that it wasn't polite to swear in public or you know that you if right. your caregivers forgot to give you gloves to wear in mass then people would judge you as being evil or a sinner or you know just like filthy you were not mm. of the right class and so the same thing happens now but it's in the realm of political correctness but those who claim to be politically correct are very narrow in their own elite and their own privilege of having actually been educated perhaps the person who is being politically correct doesn't even know the language or don't doesn't haven't had the privilege of understanding what it means Mm. or had the privilege of even examining you know of waking up on their own mm. so if you think of someone who's you know working i don't know a 12 hour shift and has many other responsibilities in the community or family how much time do they have to be on social media for example or read the news to get all the nuances of what is today's politically correct stance so first of all there's a cruelty in that because there's very little tolerance for people to bumble or stumble mm. in in their own trying to grasp of what their epistemology is and in some ways it shuts people up terribly totally and through errors how we grow like through trying yeah. Yeah. so if we're not giving the opportunity to to fail in a safe place like it's it's almost ironic i guess that's kind of the pendulum swings right but when you look at liberalism supposedly being free speech and like the opportunity to kind of speak and communicate and get to a greater truth through open communication but it's reached a point where it's actually become the complete opposite where it's free speech if you say the right thing but if you're not saying the right thing then you're not allowed to speak which right which is of course the shadow of free speech right if right. somebody is policing the free speech so then you've got both free speech and its shadow activating at the same time mm. and so there is no room for the resolution of epistemological crisis or cognitive dissonance or for someone to actually experience how their language might offend somebody and also too i think there's a current movement towards being more I'm interested in identifying with being a victim of. Mm. Now, when you're reading Marcus Aurelius, that's not what it's all about. He's from the school of the Stoics where it's like, you know, you just oh, you It's a breath of fresh air. I'm reading it like, yes, it's possible. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a tricky territory because of course, mm. you know, whoever's been victimized will carry the shadow of a perpetrator. The perpetrator will carry the shadow of the victim. So, mm. first of all, in any sort of human intercourse there needs to be 
an awareness of that, but there isn't because when you're identifying with an archetype like the victim or the perpetrator, you're caught by an archetypal energy. Mm. So it's very hard to look at the shadow of it because to look, if I am identify with being a victim of whatever it is, you know, misogyny or racism or whatever it is. Yeah. If I, if I've invested in that, if there's something that I'm getting from it, I don't want to see how my actual actions based on my feeling like a victim of might actually be wounding others because then I won't get what I want out of being a victim or even being an invalid or whatever, or being somebody who's super fit and got the whole world as their oyster. They, ha they feel like they have no permission to not be that. So mm. part of the problem is certainly in, the, I would say, the, the world culture right now around language and being is that there's this sort of perfectionism. You know, we're all trying to become perfected in a certain way. And if we fail, it's actually not our fault. It's other people who are getting in the way or mm. we can't be honest about it. We, you know, we can't be honest about our shadow. Because if I'm trying to be the perfect victim of, or the perfect perpetrator of, or the perfect whatever it is, you know, the political activist or anything, then I can't be not that because I've identified it with it from an ego perspective. So as soon as I say I am, I'm really identifying with it from an ego perspective. Someone asked me about a week ago, um, who are you? just the question like that, like we were going pretty deep into questions and I sat with it for a second. And the only thing that felt true was that anything that I can define myself as being, I'm trying to unlearn like any label that I would give you about, I am a woman, I am, you know, 29, I am Canadian. It's like, these are just such, so, so, they're like layers that I'm trying to unpeel and get to the core of what I actually am because we can use these identities to justify and behave and operate but it's not actually who we are at our like deepest core and i think exactly we yeah. identify that with these things to the point of yeah just our detriment well we identify with a sort of rigidity because mm -hmm. because if our ego is invested in being i am a this or a that yeah and we've just declared it to the whole world and what will people think of us is the kind of subtext. If all of a sudden I change my I am from I am a firefighter to I am a book writer, you know, it's like, hold it, last week I thought you were a firefighter. Well, actually I changed my mind, now I wanna be a book writer. And so it sets people off because mm -hmm. part of how we are comfortable with the person is we're able to identify they are a this or they are that. Right. And then we find some kinship in who they are. And so we can be comfortable with it. But if someone is morphing too quickly in front of us, they're a little bit freaky, yeah. a little bit scary, right? Because we don't know what to expect. So we do it to ourselves, and we do it to others. We try to pin people down to an I am, and we don't allow the fluidity of really the ever evolving self, which is kind of the little tiny epistemological crises that are going on all the time where we're always examining and re-examining what we know, how we know, what we think, etc. Um, and I think a good example is, you know, when a lot of times people will reread a favorite book, 
right? Or re or rewatch a favorite mm -hmm. film or something. Yeah. Or maybe listen to a a CD that they haven't listened to for a long time, and they have a completely different relationship. They're like whatever it might be, like how how did I ever like it? That is like so sick. Or or they go back down memory lane, or something in them that got forgotten is rekindled. Mm. How do you think? one should navigate a relationship in a world where people are clinging to their like isms or or even when you look at the victim um, archetype if how can you navigate a relationship with someone who identifies as a victim without using your like without wearing your maybe stoicism as a spiritual ego badge like you know i'm this this detached economist being who's evolved past uh, victimhood because that ultimately it's like the catch-22 you're right back to the beginning if you're using your your awareness as I am better than well I think and this is where we have to examine our own sort of pride mm. our own how much our ego is invested in who we are and also sometimes our impatience or contempt for others, even if they, whatever, we might not agree or like what they're doing, mm -hmm. is because it's actually the shadow of ourself. Mm -hmm. So I know I don't really identify a lot with being a victim of anything, but there was a time when that was a big part of my epistemology. Mm -hmm. And my outrage and anger around being a victim of not being able to get the birth control I wanted, the birth experience I wanted, you know, not feeling safe to walk on the streets for fear of molestation all my fury over that actually fueled me to be active and to dialogue with others and to not sort of fall into kind of um you know wound licking bitterness and self-destruction mm -hmm. so so there's so i think there's a place for for finding out how we are wounded and shouting out and being heard compassionately but it's hard when you're not in that place, when you can't understand the person's story about they're a victim of this or that, or you can't identify with it, you want to sort of shut them up or just get tired of hearing. But really what they need is our compassion. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting in the story of Kuan Yin, the Chinese goddess of compassion in one of the chapters of her story, there's a very interesting section in where she's going down into the realm of the demons to offer them healing. But she's aware that if she goes down in her sort of goddess-like raiment and all her sort of holy healing tears, you know, gig, that they will <laughs> actually be offended. Yeah. Because they will think she's, think she's better than them. Now, she's going down there to help them, but, you know, that's, they have a different script. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, so what she does is she, is she disguises herself as a demon so that she doesn't further injure or humiliate them. Mm. And I think that is the value of really compassion. That's a compassionate thing where mm. even we can't identify with how somebody is wounded or how their epistemology seems effed up to us, but that we can put aside our own idea of our own glory and our own greatness and our own wokeness yeah. to, to listen to what they're really saying or telling and to respond to them compassionately. We don't have to agree with it, but what heals 
the injured person's self is actually being seen and heard. And that's the only help for them to move out of it into a constructive way of being in the world. Because it's not constructive to stay in a victim state and it's not constructive to stay in the wounding state. We have to find a way to go peacefully. Especially if, if a lot of these things we learnt through childhood experiences of feeling unlovable, unsafe, unworthy. And then, so we learn to operate as a victim uh, as an adult and Mm -hmm. someone's coming in trying to help us, like it's their version of help. But if they do it by making us feel unworthy and lovable or unsafe, all it does is reinforce these like childhood ways of operating whereas if you approach it from a place of love and compassion it like teaches people that they are safe lovable and worthy and they can actually grow from their own volition without this like imposing of like i know this is good for you trust me you'll be free from misery but it like robs them from their ability to to grow and like make well, the- part of growth is finding our own competence to get out mm-hmm. of our misery. Yeah. So if people rescue us, it doesn't help ultimately, which yeah. is why the whole codependent um, right. relational system never works. Sometimes we have to just, you know, we let the child go off on their bike without the training wheels, knowing that at some point they're going to crash down yeah. and get a skinned knee. And we know that that's all part of how they have to learn. And we have to let them pick up their bicycle on their own and, and, and all of that. And so too, it's in our adult life. It's like, we have to have the freedom to be stupid, to be ignorant, to make bad choices, but it's hard to tolerate it when you, when I, or you can see that maybe that's not such a good choice. And maybe that choice they're making might actually injure us. So how do we set boundaries around that? Mm. It's like the butterfly. If we help it, break free from its cocoon it doesn't cultivate the wing strength to actually fly so we might see a butterfly struggling and think i need to help it but if it doesn't break free uh with its own strength we kill it yeah exactly mm-hmm. so we part of a, an act of kind of violence is to take away somebody's freedom to learn how to be competent Mm-hmm. And that's very difficult because very when, we witness, difficult. when we witness another person's suffering, it reflects back to us our own suffering. And right. most of us want to wiggle out of any kind of suffering as quickly as it comes. Mm. He actually speaks about that in meditations, something along the lines of like, stop trying to change other people. Like, can't you see how hard it is to change your own flaws? And it's true, like, it's, of course, it's easy to point and say, just do this. But when we examine the things that the places we're stuck in our own lives, it's not so easy. It's not so easy. Well, and sometimes we actually um, sort of reinforce our own flaws by trying to change them. Mm. Sometimes our flaws just need to be accepted. And then we accept it with love and compassion whatever it is, I am adult around banking. You know, like I, every month I faithfully do all my banking and my <laughs> budgeting and stuff, but it is, it, it takes the most unbelievable amount of energy and kind of courage to do it. I know I have to do it. It's good for me. It's part of being, 
you know, an independent being, blah, blah, blah. But it, it, I, I've been doing it for years and it's still never easy. And I used to always kind of, you know, be upset with myself. And now I like, okay, you have to do this really difficult thing. So we're going to do it at this time. And I'm going to make a nice cup of tea and, you know, set up conditions so I can do it in a loving way instead of a punishing way. And so, I mean, that's a very minor fault. Well, maybe not so minor when you've got to manage charge cards, but so if we are hating our faults, we actually can embed them further. So how do we act loving to our own faults? Just like other people learn to be tolerant of our maybe irritating ways, you know, the way that we, pick our nose at the red light or whatever, you know, <laughs> that's something most people won't admit to. But anyways, you know, so how do we be compassionate to ourselves and our flaws? And is that, I guess maybe that's the answer to what I'm about to ask, but how would you advise someone who wants to change or who acknowledges, has already like taken the massive step to acknowledging that something that they're doing maybe isn't optimal or they need to change a way of of operating in the world there's so many like i guess you would need maybe more specifics but just maybe generally if someone acknowledges that something in their life needs to be changed where where does someone start to shift maybe their belief systems or get to the root cause of it or do you start superficially is it just like fake it till you make it <laughs> well, that's how a do good we change? Question. How do we change? I I think <laughs> just like we change. Very easy, little. Just you know, one <laughs> one one sentence answer for sure. <laughs> well, I would say I can give you a one sentence. Mm. Invite all the guests mm. into your home, host them all, and see who is there and what can what are they bringing. And I often refer people when I work with them to Leonard Cohen's song, "The Guests." which is like, it's all about that. It's like, we don't know who's coming in. We don't know how the wine's flowing. We don't know where the night is going. Do, do attach this to your podcast. But that is such a powerful image because yeah. if we can host all the aspects of our being, you know, the unwelcome uncle who you know is going to try to feel up the young girls and you have to protect the young girls from him and the person who's going to drink too much alcohol and the person who's probably going to say rude things and offend a few people and the person who's going to eat all the, you know, the whatever, the shrimp balls to keep it to themselves or, you know, whatever it is at a party that might offend. And um, how do we have those, all those aspects of ourself present and allow them to be and just to witness them? Mm. Who is here now? Mm. How does the presence of all of them sort of shape and unfold rather than making a guest list for a perfect party. It will never, it will never happen. Never happen. Is the awareness uh, enough or is there, is, is integration necessary? Yes, I think the first role is to invite them in. Say, hi, oh, you're here. Never thought. Come on in. You would be coming. Okay, well, come on in. Uh, You know, whatever, go find something to eat or drink. (laughs) And maybe you might want so-and-so in the corner. So first of all, we invite them in. Mm -hmm. And then through witnessing them, we begin to be curious about what is their purpose Mm -hmm. and what are they bringing. So the irritating guest might be actually 
bringing a truth. They might, their irritation might be that they're actually pointing out the inauthentic talk or language of other people in the mm -hmm. party, right? So all the parts of ourselves that we'd shun often have something to teach us. So who are they? What is their purpose? Why have we chosen to despise them? And sometimes the despised aspects of ourselves work against us because we despise them. Right. You know, if somebody, if you have a friend who's behaving in a way that you kind of tell they're despising you, your natural response is to be a little defensive and maybe a little snippy back. Totally. Right? So whenever we despise something, it's going to respond back to us in an aggressive way or in an unhelpful way. Just like you can't, you know, if the toaster isn't working, by just banging it around on the counter and saying stupid toaster is not going to help the materia of the toaster be communicated with correctly about how it might be repaired. You've got to get into relationship with it, look where the broken piece is, etc. Well, so too with ourselves. So, so first of all, let everybody in. Yeah. Find out who they are. Find out what your response to them is. Am I scared? Do I like it? Don't I like it? Etc. And then try to, over time, find out what, what they're really bringing. Like, what are the gifts? And why are they wounded if they're wounded? Or why are they healthy if they're healthy? Like, what are they getting or not getting? And so once we start to witness our own inner drama, ah, we start to see all the people in the world that we feel that yeah. we love or intolerant for are actually reflected there for us. One thing that's fascinated me in exploring all the guests invited and uninvited to my dinner party is how some things um, were coping mechanisms. Yes. For, you know, being younger and not knowing how to navigate a situation that might not have been the healthiest. And so we cultivate behaviors to protect ourselves, um, which were so useful at the time. But then as an adult, no longer so useful because we know better or we would have dealt with a situation in a different way but so we cultivate these habits and then they carry through to adulthood what do we do with those how do we unlearn or unwind or yeah well again it's a part of sort of a, a loving acceptance so if we say my coping mechanism was to eat vanilla cake whenever I was emotionally upset, if you know, a lover dumped me and mm. I would eat vanilla cake every day for a week, you know, eventually I learned that that's not a good coping mechanism mm. because I put on 200 pounds and that wasn't good, whatever, for my yeah. health. So that's pretty obvious. But then just saying that that's bad or wrong or a poor coping mechanism isn't enough. Yeah. Right? We have to say, I felt wounded. When I felt wounded, for example, I felt lost. I felt like I was in a hole. I couldn't be in a hole by myself. I felt too ashamed to reach out to a friend. I needed comfort. This provided comfort. Ah, comfort for be when I'm wounded. So that arises, comfort when I'm wounded. I need comfort when I'm wounded. So then it's like, well, eating a whole vanilla cake isn't the best way. So what other ways can I find comfort? What other ways that are functional? And mm -hmm. we begin to, 
to find those. And then we might have to explore the fearfulness around phoning a friend mm -hmm. to comfort us because we might feel ashamed or guilty or whatever. So then we have to wrestle through the fear of not seeming so like we have all our ducks in a row or so perfect mm -hmm. or anything like that. And so I, in my work with people, I think that the turning point in therapy is always when the person begins to understand the problem within themselves was constructed because they were trying to survive. Yeah. And that's all okay. Yeah. You, you know, you got this far in life because you did these things that helped you survive. Now those things you use to help you survive are kind of messing up your life a little bit. So let's keep surviving. But what new tools can you find and adopt? Once they start to get a compassionate view of that and a willingness and ability to access new tools or different tools, then all of a sudden that self-love comes in and they can find new ways of coping. But we have to first acknowledge, yeah, we're all doing the best we can. That to me has been one of the biggest drivers of compassion for other people um, is realizing that the more absurd, mean, cruel, unkind, crazy that the other person is, the more wounded they likely are because that the way that they're expressing themselves feels right to them and safe to them. And so if that's not, yeah, if that's, if you can't find compassion for that, that how destructive they're behaving is actually their best, they're doing their best. Right. Exactly. So, and that, yeah, by reinforcing their low self-worth or their fears um, by telling them, you know, you're wrong or you're bad, it just was only going to solidify these things that they believe, which are actually driving them to operate in the world that way. Yeah, they sort of kind of go deeper and deeper into a spiral of shame, really. Right. And every time you do something that you feel ashamed about, it's like you care less about yourself. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, oh, what the F? It doesn't matter. I'll just do what, what does it matter if I less do Less to lose. Yeah. Well? Yeah, there's less to lose. Mm -hmm. So part of really building good self-esteem is to do esteemable things. Right. To make the choice to do esteemable things. And how does all of this fit with the voluptuous unknowing? Oh, you're taking my term, the voluptuous unknowing. Yeah, I, I actually, I feel like I tell people about you and that concept so often because my Capricorn brain is always trying to figure out, I think maybe even humans in general, we're trying to know and understand and figure out and categorize, get answers. And so you said this to me a long time ago to sit in the voluptuous unknowing. And so, yeah, how does knowing and unknowing, like how does that fit? At what point do we have to just be like, you know what, there's healing and there's inviting in the guests and there's get you know like figuring out and surrendering and how does that fit in the the do versus the surrender right um i think you know the, how i would how i would describe the voluptuous unknowing is all that would serve us to be content and at peace that we do not yet know mm. and that is not ruled by the ego so it's not ruled by the rational mind or our ego. It, is, it comes to us unbidden. 
as an intuition or a perception or a little truth, kind of little tinkling bell of truth that goes off in a situation that, that says, you know, maybe I should do this instead of this or not act this way. So, but really some would call it like the psyche or the un personal unconscious, collective unconscious. The reason I call it the voluptuous unknowing is because I think what we don't know is fuller and more voluptuous than what we do know. Mm. So I think the problem of the, of the you know, Cartesian mind is that we think what we know is the most important, the most voluptuous, but it's the most bereft of really helpful information. So if we can be still, whether it's through meditation or sort of repetitive activities like walking or gardening, where we're, we're kind of shutting down our so-called monkey brain, mm -hmm. when we can just sit in the stillness, then there's more chance for information to come to us right. out of that voluptuous unknowing. But if we're con constantly busy and constantly thinking and sorting and figuring out, there's no room for yeah. that knowing to come forth. Mm. So being bored is a really good thing. And of course, in our modern culture, people have no tolerance for being bored. Mm. Or being alone or silent, like in silence, there's right. always yeah. distraction. And we live in a very distracted world, especially yes, technology, exactly. music, podcasts, just screens. Exactly. And of course, before we get all judgy about that, we have to kind of unpack a little bit. Well, why are we so afraid yeah. of being still? Why are we so afraid of quiet? So it's when we're sitting in the voluptuous unknowing that we actually become most aware of how actually vulnerable we are and how small we are. And the ego freaks the F out. It starts giving us all sorts of ideas of what we should do so we don't have to attend to the reality of how really small mm. and vulnerable we are. Yeah, I think that's important to do. Oh, it's hugely important. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to be compassionate to those who would, you know, fill every moment with activity or productivity because what they're really saying is I'm fighting for what, they're fighting for my life. They think it's really their very life that they're fighting for. Yeah. So that's why, you know, spiritual practices such as meditation or yoga or walking in the woods, those, those activities that allow us quiet meditative time, you know, cooking a meal where we're not in, caught in some sort of perfectionist monkey brain chatter, but we're actually deepening into, deepening into stillness are very important for us to move into stillness and quiet without being freaked out it's sort of like when you have little children they have to be taught i don't know nowadays what people teach children but you know it's like it's part of part of i would say healthy parenting is teaching the child to be okay with being bored to mm -hmm. being okay with being alone but you don't just say okay now it's time for you to learn how to be alone you're in your crib you're, you know you're one year old and now it's time for you to learn how to be alone Goodness. and we'll see you in 10 hours you know like forget it the child will scream their lungs out because it's too terrifying. But you can start with bedtime rituals that calm them and that help them feel secure and safe. And then maybe they need to get up and have a drink of water and one more song or something a few times before they feel safe enough to be alone. 
And so as adults, we can't just say to people, well, you just got to get into more quiet. You know, that'll be good for you. It's a, forget it. They will think you're insane. And it is in a way cruel, but we can begin to invite stillness. Mm, I've been doing like working my way back to that age, actually zero to nine months of, and speaking to my parents about this, the, the not really co-sleeping and being in a crib from a very young age and being loved and tended to, but crying myself to sleep, which is a very, very common method and being taught from a very young age that like darkness is a scary time. Um, you know, that, these things that we we think as humans, babies aren't going to remember this anyways. But it, well, we we do remember, yeah. Camille. We remember in our body mm. and in our feeling, and the memory of our body and feeling is much greater than the memory of our mind. Totally, so it matters how we treat a child who is yet not speaking. Yeah, and the yeah the fears of darkness, fear like little things. So many like it just permeated things and. Um, one of the things I've been doing, it's been pretty powerful, is kind of rewriting the memory of taking mm -hmm. myself into a really relaxed state and then remembering it differently and kind of trying to create new pathways that my brain so that in modern day I have other memories to reach back at. It's like, look, you can, you were safe. And like, this is another option almost to like, yeah, create a new neural pathway of like it could have gone this way too and then just by remembering it remembering and like trying to embody that safety at that time because that's what I was looking for and it was just was being given to me in a way that didn't wasn't optimal right despite the intention and I think that too is the intention and forgiving people for doing their best because I do think that everyone's doing their best right and most people don't injure out intentionally yeah you know, those are a small percentage of the population and we call those sociopaths mm. and also too you know it's important to be mindful when we're dealing with traumas people a lot of times judge trauma you know that certain things are more worthy traumas to be paid attention yeah. to than not but and donald kalsha talks about this in in his book about trauma and the soul is that he he's very clear and emphasizes that it's not the nature of the trauma it's the perception and response of the trauma that you have to pay attention to. So for some children, it's not traumatic to have the bedroom closed and parents going off and they're left right. alone all night. Like for them, they're like, thank God, the parental bodies are gone, you know, like, <laughs> woohoo. But for other children, you know, they can be 15 and they're still not okay if the parents aren't close by, right? So, and yeah. they would experience that as traumatic. So we always have to attend to how did you experience that and was that a wounding experience for you and the nature of who you are mm. um you mentioned sociopaths i actually have a question related to this maybe first you can define it and then how does that fit into with relationships how do we distinguish if it's my shit or if i need to set boundaries Okay, well, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. That's like, that's a whole other hour, you know, <laughs> identifying your own shadow. Yeah. So we might have to come back to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a big I think topic. to understand sociopathy, there's a little tiny book that I think has been one of the most useful um, reads. It's uh, by Guggenbuehl Craig. 
mm. called the emptied soul. Oh, oh, no, did I get that wrong? Uh, yeah, I think it's the emptied soul. I'll find soul. it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, hold on here. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, the emptied soul on the nature of the psychopath. Okay. Adolf Guggenbuehl Craig. And he talks about how the sociopathic personality develops. It's, it's really multiple traumas to the psyche so that the person's psyche is like kind of like a desert landscape or a post-war landscape, you know, where there's blown up buildings and shattered earth and, you know, chimneys torn down so that the integrity of the psyche is just smithereens or it's like desert landscape. And so you don't have anything mm. really to work with. Okay. And so the whole person personality becomes very ego run because you have no information coming from the voluptuous unknowing because the channels through which that comes are just shattered. Mm. And so you develop a personality that seems to work, but it can be adjusted according to the situation. So there's no consequence. There's no conscience because with, with the shattering of this personal unconscious, there's no, there's no ethic left. There's no ethical way to, to feed in or read into the, the collective unconscious. Mm. Um, and in order to survive, the, the sociopath becomes highly perceptive. It's like the instincts, you know, the animal instincts become very, very sharp and they become very good at perceiving how people are dangerous or safe and how they can manipulate the situation to keep themselves safe. Mm. So I would recommend if someone really wants to understand the nature of the psychopath, to read that and then to work on their compassion for yeah. when you're dealing with someone who seems like a complete monster, you're dealing with someone whose insides are like Swiss cheese. Yeah. And that's a terrible state of living. If you think about even the small events in your life where you have, you know, your epistemology has been shattered. You know, the boyfriend cheats on you. You feel like you want to, you're falling into a hole and you'll never get back. But imagine someone who's lived their entire life. In that state. In that state. It's, mm -hmm. it's excruciating. And he also talks about how we all have this to some degree. Mm. And he calls it the archetype of the invalid. And uh, Wilfred Bean would call it the psychotic part of the personality. But we all have these places in our psyche where we are shattered. Mm. And if there's many places, then, you know, we become, develop a personality disorder. So in some ways, we have to be more and more tolerant and compassionate. And to see we all get to how we are because we're doing the best we can. And why it isn't a good idea to condemn people. Yeah. For every little thing. At what point do we um, compassionately step away from someone who may be harming us or, yeah, causing chaos in our life? Well, I think it's a very personal thing. You might tolerate a person I can't tolerate. And so it's important to acknowledge our individual tolerance. Mm -hmm. You don't have to hate the person. Yeah. I know that I'm not going to be hanging around and facilitating any 
groups for sexual offenders. You know, as a therapist, I can't do that. That's a territory that's too triggering for me. And I can't do child psychology because I, I will take them all home and they will become my children. You know, I just like that. So I have to work within the realm that and I can know thyself first. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, we always have to know ourselves first or try to know ourselves for sure. But it, so it's, it is about, we need permission to say, I don't like it. I can't be here and not to be forced to be there because we all have different tolerances. Like some of us like broccoli, some of us like kale salad mm-hmm. and, and those differences are important. And I guess it is, I guess seeking guidance from someone like you, if, if people need help, because I know also there comes a point where you can't try broccoli once and be like, broccoli is not for me, you know, because maybe it'll be my eating habits as a child compared to now, had I not tried, you know, give it a good try. And also, I mean, in the, in the context of what we're actually talking about is people mirror a lot of our own shit to us and it can be an incredible tool for self-exploration and growth, but then Mm -hmm. not being a punching bag at the same time. Um, Exactly. I don't think anyone. Yeah. I think being a punching bag is never a good option, but some of us are that because of the, you know, the complex structures of our psyche Mm. and we would encourage people to care for themselves, but really growing up. And I think we do it right till our last breath. um, It really involves a willingness to always be editing our epistemology. Mm. You know, is this really working for me? Is this really my true story? Yeah. And my story in reference to others. And that takes humility. Yeah. You know, if we're all puffed up in pride that this is my epistemology, we will injure ourselves and we will injure others. So how do we be willing to edit what we think is true? How are we willing to say, you know what? I learned what I learned over here, but what if I went over there to learn it? Mm. I feel like that's a perfect place to end. We are. Mm. <laughs> Camille, thank you. It's always thank such you. a pleasure. Yeah, same. Okay, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed and I will talk to you soon. Bye.